Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Heredity podcast for March 2016. In true Easter style, this month's show features both chocolate and eggs. First off, we'll be delving into the reproductive habits of a fungal disease decimating the chocolate industry, and then investigating the genetic constraints on the size of quail's eggs. Chocolate is made from the seeds of the cocoa plant and has been cultivated for millennia, originating in Central and South America. But, like any crop, cocoa can suffer from disease, and one of the most devastating is called frosty pod rot. It's caused by a fungus, and infection has been known to wipe out 100% of a crop. I spoke to Cathy Aim from Purdue University in the USA, who's been investigating how this fiendish fungus reproduces. So the fungus's Latin name is Monilioptera rorii, which is a bit of a mouthful, but the common name is Frosipod rot. And the reason it has that common name, frostypod rot, is because at the end of infection, the fungus produces billions of spores that are white, and it produces these on the surface of the pod, which gives it a very frosty-looking appearance. And so tell me, how um, much of an impact does frostypod rot have? Um, For the people whose livelihood depends on producing chocolate in Latin America, it's very devastating. So for the world, the global chocolate production, most of that occurs in West Africa now just to escape the uh, disease pressures in Latin America. The entire industry has moved continents because of the disease pressures from this fungus. And so for such a devastating disease of what I imagine is quite a large industry globally, I suppose we must know a lot about it scientifically. Um, Right. Well, it's funny. It's one of these odd diseases that um, when it was originally described, it was described as something called an ascomycete, which is a completely different phylum than what we discovered it actually belongs to. Um, As in medicine, you need to be able to identify correctly what's causing the disease in order to treat it. And the same thing is true in plant pathology. So I did work on this fungus in 2006 to show that it was actually a relative of these mushroom-forming fungi. So that allows us, hopefully, to create better treatment. But the way that it reproduced still was not known until this study with my um, my graduate student. So, so tell me, typically for this kind of disease, how would you expect it to reproduce? Well, in fungi, no, typically, but... Um, For the group of fungi that it belongs in, we would absolutely expect it to reproduce via sex primarily, probably not have much of an asexual cycle, and the sexual cycle is marked by the production of a mushroom-like fruiting body. Um, That's It's in a family within an order, within a subphylum that all follows that type of developmental pathway. So are we, t- are we saying that there are sort of male and female fungi? 
Oh, well, the fungi are a little more complicated. The, um, the one I studied at Oxford had 14,000 different mating types rather than two. So we don't call them male and female sexes. It's uh, just mating types. So how many different mating types does this frosty pod rot have? Yeah, frosty pod rot, we've only found two. Oh, boring by fungi standards. <laughs> But when you were looking into this particular fungus, you found out that although they did have these mating types, they didn't seem to be using them. That's correct. So it still had um, the vestiges of a mating type system, as its sister species do, but there was absolutely no evidence whatsoever that it was using them. There was no signs of recombination at all. Um, and the population structure showed only clonal uh, reproduction or asexual reproduction and not utilization of these, these mating types that it still carries. Are there any hypotheses as to why something might ditch sexual reproduction and use and just stick with um, asexual reproduction? We're getting into really conjectural territory here, but um, asexual reproduction is so much cheaper in terms of resources on an organism. And if you have um, abundant hosts or substrate and the environmental conditions are good, it is a lot, again, cheaper and easier to reproduce asexually than to bother with sex. So now we know that this particular fungus has only two mating types that you've found and it reproduces almost entirely or, if, if in fact, exclusively asexually. What does that mean for treating it in the future? What's, what's the next step? Is there going to be a way that we can try to develop different treatments or different um, ways to combat this fungus? Yes, we are looking into that right now. So breeding programs can take this information and try to breed cultivars that are resistant to both mating types. So that's important. Now they know at least what they need to breed against is just the two mating types. And we're able, we've developed a diagnostic test that you can easily determine which mating type uh, a particular strain of the fungus is that you're working with. And then in the laboratory, um, my student Jorge and I have discovered that these have phenotypic differences in the laboratory in terms of how many spores they produce. And so what we're looking at right now with our genome is what the genetic basis for this difference is and whether we can turn that into some kind of biocontrol to help reduce the amount of spores that are produced. That was Kathy Aim from Purdue University. Quail's eggs are delicious with celery salt, perfect little bite-sized morsels. But what keeps them so small? Well, there are lots of potential reasons, mostly biological, none of which have anything to do with my culinary preferences. The size of the egg that a mother quail lays can have a whole host of impacts on the chick's development. These impacts are just some examples of what are called maternal effects. Now, maternal effects are an important force of nature, but the traits which cause them, something like egg size, are not fully understood. Joel Pick, who was at the time based at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, wanted to investigate further, and I called him up to find out more, starting out by asking him a bit more about these maternal effects. In a large variety of uh, taxa, mothers invest into um, their offspring, um, and this investment uh, usually leads to um, an, uh, 
effects on the offspring's development, and this is what we call uh, a maternal effect. So it's a kind of environmental effect of um, the mother's phenotype onto the offspring's phenotype. This is key in oviparous organisms, so uh, where the offspring develop in an egg, because the mother is creating the developmental environment. So um, she's putting in everything um, into the egg that the offspring is going to use. Um, and those different components uh, are going to control how the offspring develops. And, and you've been investigating what I suppose is one of the most fundamental properties of an egg, which is its size. So you started working with quail, is this right? Um, so we have a captive population of Japanese quail. So quail are the birds that are responsible for the uh, small eggs that are very popular in gourmet cooking. And so you've been trying to understand how egg size varies and what controls the varying of that egg size by essentially playing God and uh, artificially selecting particular traits in your quail populations. Yes. So originally we took the 25% with the largest eggs and incubated um, only those females' eggs. And then um, in subsequent generations, we took only the 50% of females uh, within that line producing the most extreme eggs. So essentially you can artificially select for larger and larger or smaller and smaller eggs and then you can watch to see which other traits change in response to that. And so tell me, what did you find? Um, So we looked at three main traits. We looked at um, how uh, the actual amount of resources in the egg um, responded to selections and we found that indeed our large egg selection lines had more resources than our small egg selection lines. Um, We then looked at... um, a kind of size-number trade-off, which is a a fundamental concept um, in evolutionary biology. Uh, Relative to its size, um, a quail egg is roughly the same size as um, a human baby. And quails lay clutches, in in the wild lay clutches of about 8 to 10 eggs. So this is equivalent to um, human laying, oh, not laying, uh, giving birth to um, 8 to 10 children over... um, a 10-day period. So this is an absolutely huge investment and you can then imagine that if um, these eggs are larger um, that the female would be laying less of those eggs. But we didn't find that egg production changed um, at all in response to our selection. So there seems to be no evidence um, that uh, the ability of a female to produce um, eggs was limiting um, selection on egg size. Okay, so the number of eggs that these quail lay doesn't seem to be correlated with how big the eggs get. What about how big the quail are themselves? There was a uh, slight response um, in body size um, to our selection on egg size, um, but we would have expected actually a much larger uh, response. And also the response that we found was um, quite inconsistent. So um, it weakened as our experiment went on and this shows that it's um, unlikely that there's a strong genetic link between egg size and body size. And you are artificially selecting your lineages to have large eggs and small eggs, these divergent lines. How big could you get the eggs to go or how small could you get them to go? Are we talking grain of rice and watermelon? Not quite, although that was, you know, in my head what we were aiming for. We uh, really thought that we were going to be able to select for both larger and smaller eggs, but it seems that um, we very quickly reached the limit for um, how large we could, um, uh, the size of the eggs that we could select for. Um, 
Um, and this is very interesting because it uh, indicates that there's some kind of constraint um, to selecting on larger eggs. And um, selection on larger eggs is what we would expect to find um, in nature. And that was very unexpected and I think sheds some light on um, why variation um, in fitness-related traits, or specifically in egg size, uh, exists within populations. Mm. And I mean, I suppose in some ways it's not that surprising because there's only so much quail to fit an egg in, so you couldn't make an egg too big, otherwise it won't fit in the mother, surely. Yeah, we wondered this, but actually females can produce double-yoked eggs, um, which I think are very popular in in some places. But um, a double-yoked egg is nearly twice as big as a single-yoked egg, maybe not surprisingly. Um, but the females, uh, they don't, they manage to produce this inside them and lay this egg, and they don't die after laying them. So it's not um, that there's a kind of um, physical upper limit to um, egg size that we've reached. Um, so we think that it's a genetic limit because the females are physically able to produce a larger egg than they do. And my final question, I suppose, is did you eat a lot of quail eggs during your study? A huge amount of quail eggs, yeah. We kind of fed our institute over the four years of the project. That was Joel Pick, who was based at the University of Zurich when he did that study. And that's all we have time for this month. Join us next month for more Heredity Highlights. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 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 Mm.